It is the Chicagoverse Unlimited podcast, featuring interviews with the premier artist and industry in the Chicago music community. My name is Haima Black. I host this podcast at DynastyPodcast.com. This week, Nan Warshaw and Rob Miller of Bloodshot Records. Here's how that sounds. Haima Black here at Bloodshot Records headquarters in Chicago, and I'm here with Nan Warshaw and Rob Miller from the label. How are you guys doing today? I'm exhausted. How are you? I'm, I'm the same way, man, but I'm glad to be here. This is cool. How are you doing? Oh, in the same boat as you guys, but well, thanks. Yeah. You know, so we are here today to talk about the 20th anniversary of Bloodshot Records. Um, let's start there. When is the actual 20th anniversary? Do you have, like, the specific date? Do you know? It's sometime. D- d- <laughs> define when we started, you know. It's, it's, all, it's all in the behold, you know, the definition is in the eye of the definer. The fir- our first record came out officially sometime at the end of June 1994. We were not intending to be here 20 years from now, so our, our note-taking back then is, uh, <laughs> from back then is uh, pretty, uh, pretty awful. <laughs> you know, like, let's kind of dig into the history there. Kind of what was the culture like back then in 1994 in Chicago? It was still in Chicago at that time, correct? Yes. Uh, what was happening back then, if you may remember, was Chicago was being heralded as the next Seattle, and our major label A&R people were descending on the city and signing anything with two guys, long hair and, and guitars and fuzz, fuzzy uh, effects pedals and, and stuff like that, and there was this whole scene going on that was being completely ignored, uh, that was all touching one way or another on Roots music and we were watching you know Smashing Pumpkins, Liz Fair, Urge Overkill, all these things that that haven't stood the test of time like the, like those bands just getting snapped up and and completely everyone was completely ignoring all this underground of the underground and we thought we would uh, put together a, a, a kind of a an oral snapshot of that an alternative to the alternative at the time or the next kind of I mean, that next Seattle thing, that, that kind of branding or that statement has really lived on, for better or for worse, too. People still remember that. Yeah, I think uh, they remember that, but I think also people forget, you know, when you were in the clubs at that time, just just what a vibe of, oh, my God, if I, if I can play these, you know, if I can play a lounge acts, if I can play a double door, I'm going to get signed to a major and I'm going to be rich and that's it. And we're the next Nirvana. Yeah, everyone was walking around with, with that kind of mentality and everyone kind of was ignoring why we all got into the underground and, and hated the mainstream in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, everybody wants to be underground and then when the mainstream comes, a lot of people are like, oh, no, 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 I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. You can, yeah. Um, so you guys, it's 1994. Like, how did you start determining that this was going to be you know, a label or a project or even just like, let's put out a record. Kind of where did that start out? I mean, in 1994, we didn't start out saying, let's create a label as a business. It was the idea of putting out that first compilation that we were passionate about. And it was a lot of, you know, note taking and late night bar napkins and, um, you know, just getting excited at the idea of putting together a snapshot of the scene at the time. And and so uh, once we had a list that was, you know, 20 bands, we said, well, out of that, we should be able to get a dozen of these bands to contribute a track. And 
we approached them and got it. What were the logistics like in putting together like a compilation back then, especially from such like an underground standpoint? Were you guys worried about like signing contracts and getting lawyers involved, or was it all really just like this DIY kind of handshake deal? Oh, we, we didn't have the faintest idea what we were doing <laughs> or what we were getting into. I mean, it sounds glib, but we didn't. Yeah, I mean, there was no internet at the time, so you can't look up like copyright law, like licensing thing. Like that's that information wasn't as available. No, and and sometimes when I'm telling people what it was like back then, and we were trying to get ideas of where we could send the record once it came out, I was taking the train down to Harold Washington Library to go to the giant bank of phone books and looking up record stores in Lexington, Kentucky, and writing down addresses and things like that. Yeah, <laughs> it seems you know I I would then come home with all these list of things, get on my dinosaur, and then you know trot over <laughs> to Delilah's or uh, or uh, uh, Crash Palace and and or Tang Cat, and then. Uh, and then we would just start mailing things out, writing things on envelopes. and <laughs> You know, was it more, and I know it's easy to look at these things kind of with some nostalgia sometimes, like was it more romantic to do it that DIY where there wasn't the digital, you had to like reach out to record stores and, and really like do the legwork yourself versus now everything is email and it's very efficient, but I think it loses some of that personal kind of touch. I'm happy not to have to get on the train and ride down to Harold Washington Library and, and pour through phone books. I didn't see much romanticism in that. But yeah, when you're, when you're young and you're starting this thing off and you're at Kinko's at three in the morning after doing your day job of, of drywalling houses and you know, you're, you're, you're cutting and pasting catalogs to mail out to people and there's, there's, there's drywall dust falling on the copier and stuff, yeah, it, there is a bit of you know, kind of this this project that we're doing that's that's really cool. Yeah. You know and, and and after the first release came out, that's when we started getting letters and they were real letters, um, from bands and fans around the country saying, Oh wow, this is cool. We have a scene like this in our town too and telling us about the other bands in their towns that ha were doing something similar. And and I got to say, that was exciting, getting those letters, and, and the people cared and were enthusiastic about their scene as well, and to find out about all those scenes around the country. You know, and that kind of leads into my next question, which was going to be like, you know, when did you guys start to really get an idea that this was connecting with people, or that maybe some of the artists you were working with are really going to like, you know, maybe kind of make their mark because now it's easy to look like you guys have had like murder by death you've had an eco case like you've had people and artists that that have definitely like um made their impact and are well known but when when was kind of like some of the early examples where you guys are like man people are really starting to find out about this i remember our first cmj showcase in 90 in the fall of 95 <clears throat> in New York City uh, on the Lower East Side uh, brown, at a club called Brownies and we had a day party because they wouldn't let our bands into the regular festival so we just put on a day party and the old 97s played and the Waco Brothers and Moonshine Willie and world famous Blue Jays and uh, probably a couple others and again we had no idea what we were doing and I went out onto, and it was packed it was packed to the, the old 97s first record had just come out and so had the Waco brothers and I went outside to have one of my uh, patented minor panic attacks and I noticed a line down the block and in the line I noticed Robert Criscow the the head critic from the Village Voice and Greel Marcus this amazing 
rock and roll historian writer standing in line and they couldn't get in and I was like holy shit this might we might be onto something yeah and then and, and then a couple years later at South by Southwest when we signed uh, uh, Alejandro Escovedo he came out his first showcase as a as a bloodshot artist and he was introduced over the PA at this pl- club called uh, La Zona Rosa and there was you know hundreds and hundreds of people there and he said uh, and we want to welcome to the stage bloodshot recording artist Alejandro Escovedo, and I was like, oh my God, what have we done? <laughs> this is serious. I mean, because this is a serious artist, and he's entrusting us with this. Get chills just uh, tell, retelling that. Yeah. And then I think also, you know, once we had staff uh, that were expecting a paycheck, you know, that puts a weight of responsibility on our shoulders to maintain this as a business and it's not just our hobby anymore it's you know it's all these artists livelihoods are dependent on us as well as our staff at what point did it really start to become like you're talking about like like a business you know or not like a business but a business where you started to realize that like we got to have we got to have paychecks we got to have like you know w9 forms all these kind of things I mean, the first three years, no one was paid, and uh, we put in as much time as we had, uh, you know, separate from our day jobs. And then it was sometime in the third year that we hired our first uh, paid staff person, and that was a part-time publicist uh, who was Kelly Hogan. Um, who became one of our artists, but that's a separate story. That's amazing. Yeah, she was a great publicist because she can talk to anyone and she's charming and entertaining uh, and witty and can describe music well. But um, so she was our first time paid employee. And, you know, we, when we hired her, we hadn't ever paid ourselves anything. And so... Um, it was later that year that I think that we, you know, decided to probably, you know, pay our investments to ourselves back first and then begin to pay ourselves a little bit. I mean, as, as we hung around and in probably every record we put out made, made money back and we continued to grow and we got a, a bit of a reputation and then we're into year three, four, five and other artists are starting to come to us. Yeah, the responsibility becomes to the art, and and all of a sudden these people are entrusting their art with you, and that is a very, you know, humbling and sobering experience and feeling. So it was like, okay, we've we've got to we've got to, you know, pay our respects to the trust that these people are giving us, and and you grow the business accordingly. Now, how have you guys seen kind of the Chicago? music scene, climate, industry, any of these things kind of change since starting out. Because Chicago, I think in some ways, is a very different city than it was back then. And I think in some other ways, it's actually still kind of similar, um, you know, in the hip hop scene. I see, you know, we haven't had anyone say it's the next Seattle, but (laughs) you see, you know, a lot of artists who see, you know, Chance or like um, Chief Keef getting kind of signed. And I think that there's a lot of that same hustle for better or for worse, that there might have been around that kind of Seattle proclamation. Well, I think what Chicago's always had for it, going for it, is it's a hustling town. Uh, it's not a company town like New York, L.A., or Nashville that people can come here and work on, or if they're from here, they can they can work on what they want to do in a fairly free environment out of the glare of the spotlight. They can develop their own thing 
with within an environment of a lot of supportive clubs, a lot of supportive radio, a lot of supportive people like you. There's lots of retail left. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's right in the middle of the country, so there's lots of people touring and coming through, cross-pollinating things, lots of studios. There's lots of creative people here existing without the pressure of being a big thing. And you can, you can have your, uh, a lot of our artists came here, like Nico Case and Kelly Hogan and, and uh, John Langford came here because they can play with anyone. There's all these different things that they can do with their art without a lot of uh, financial risk taking. And there's a lot of different labels. And, and I think that environment has been here for a generation, in spite of some of the best efforts of, of <laughs> the city and, and other entities who want to like crack down on creativity or who are making it harder for artists. Yeah. You know, what does it mean to be a record label in 2014 at a time where people either, you know, maybe don't know that they would need a record label, maybe they decide they don't want to be on a label, they'll just do it independently, or, you know, where so much of the infrastructure of the industry has shifted or maybe doesn't exist in a lot of ways. So, so what does it mean to still be here in 2014, still be thriving 20 years later, and still be putting out releases and working with artists that people really care about on an emotional level? I think that any artist will realize that, um, that they need a team of people working behind them doing publicity, promotion, marketing, you know, they need someone having their back while they're on the road. Someone, you know, sending out posters to the venue and working the tour press and, you know, making sure the stores are stocked. And, and so all the day-to-day -day details that are too much for any one person to do, especially if they're on the road. And so whether that artist wants to have that team be a record label or if they want to hire them independently or, you know, get people to volunteer to do that to help them out. I mean, those people need to be there today as much as they ever have. And so I, I don't know that that has changed that much. The, what really has changed is the availability or the ability to get your music out there. And so it's easier than ever to put a record out, but it's probably harder than ever to get it noticed. And if you use the analogy of, you know, it's a speck of sand on the beach, there, it's a huge beach, and you're just a speck of sand, and how do you get your speck of sand noticed? You need, you know, a lot of spotlight shining on it to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I completely agree. It's something that I've seen over and over, and, and a lot of people talk about on the podcast when we have them on is, yeah, you can throw your record up on SoundCloud or Bandcamp really easily. You can put out YouTube videos. You can have a Tumblr and an Instagram. That's all, you know, not like easy, easy, but it's easy, and you can do it independently. But it doesn't mean that anyone's going to notice it. So absolutely, you know, and, and looking at where Bloodshot is now in 2014, like, you know, if a younger band is checking you guys out or listening to this or, you know, wants to maybe get their music out there, What's the best way for them to kind of get Bloodshot's attention or maybe kind of put something in front of you guys for consideration? Well, back, back to your, your previous question. Uh, several years ago, there was a, when, when you know, the internet was exploding and it, and it was so easy to just put your music up there and there was much talk about the death of labels. Like, are, we, are we necessary? And I think that talk has, has really diminished because people do realize that they need this team behind them and 
if you are an artist, I mean, if you're an artist, first of all, you are probably not known for your logistical acumen at, <laughs> at, at planning, you know, the, the mundane aspects of a, of a music career. You don't want to, and you shouldn't have to. You should be creating. You should be out there performing. You shouldn't have to be setting up a phoner in Providence, Rhode Island, or making sure, <laughs> you know, records are in the racks in Lawrence, Kansas, or whatever. So I think that uh, that people have decided that labels are an effective and or not not maybe labels but a team around you that you trust what's gone is the the sense of labels being these monolithic entities that are kind of the gatekeepers we decide not we but i'm i'm taking on the voice of a major label in say the late mid to late 90s we are deciding what's coming out we're deciding what you're going to like right. we're deciding what songs are going to be on this they album they have gold plated toilets in their offices in you know silver lake or echo park or whatever have you been to our bathroom i mean yes it's it, the, the gold toilet here is very impressive so 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 that sort of uh, sense of labels rest of the world that has totally been demolished and that is absolutely for the for the betterment of society absolutely you know Greg Corner from uh, Kill Hannah told me something a couple of years ago when I was working on Q101 and it was the summer that we knew that Q101 was going off the air we didn't have a specific date but we knew it was coming I worked on the local music show and so we had uh, a lot of the bigger artists we'd worked with over the last decade that I worked on the show come in and do final interviews. And so we had Kill Hannah come on. Um, I think it was Greg. I don't remember if anyone else from Kill Hannah was in town at that point. But we had Greg Corner in, and I don't remember if he said this on the air or off, but he was talking, you know, as Q101 is facing going off the air, <coughs> he said something that's always stuck with me, and he said, all the people who were doing this for an easy paycheck have, like, jumped ship because it's not an easy paycheck anymore. And the only people who are going to be still doing this are the ones who are stubborn or passionate or kind of stupid enough to still be doing it, even though the, the easy money's gone, but they're doing it because it's what they have to do because they love it. And I see that more and more every year that goes by. Oh, yeah. If, you're, if you want to run a label to make money, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, if, if it happens, that's just, that's just unbelievable gravy and an unbelievable uh, uh, sign of respect from the audience yeah. that, that you're, you're doing something right. And you have, to, you have to honor that every day when you come in here. For, like I said kind of earlier, you know, for anyone who's listening or for anybody who is an aspiring artist or, or maybe has a really great sound, a really great kind of like, they've got their stuff together and they want to take it to that next level, you know, is there a way to get it in front of Bloodshot? Is there a way to get it considered by you guys? Or is there a kind of method that you like to receive music or anything like that by? Well, the, the, the beauty and the it, beauty from the cultural standpoint and probably the infuriating aspect from the, uh, from the band's point of view is that all independent labels are idiosyncratic manifestations of their quite unable to get along in the real world owners or founders. Um, so we've actually passed on a lot of things that were by bands that have their shit together, that, that are right now very, very successful, but something about it didn't strike our particular tastes. And, and it would be disingenuous to bring on a band that we didn't really feel passionate about. So. To your point, what does a band do? You get out there and do what you do. You play, you perform, you hone your performance, you, you learn something from every show, you keep writing, you keep 
figuring out what you want to do and and send us something. If we like it, we'll come see the show or we might not listen to it for six months or we might hear from one of our bands that you open for that these guys are really cool. I mean, if you look around our office, point at a poster from a band and I can tell you a different story about how they came to us. It's There's no template. There's no... A&R department, there's no, you know, uh, a, a conference room where we sit around throwing demos around, weighing the pros and cons and the sounds and what's what's hot and what's happening. And we Even in spite of the golden toilet here. I, well, that's, yeah, that's beyond that. That that was here before, that when we moved. <laughs> uh, so there, there is no good one way to do it other than have a band that tickles our ear somehow, and then we'll figure out a way to make it work. Yeah. But I'd add to that, you know, that a band needs to do their research before s wasting their time or any label's time and find out what that label likes. Learn, learn about the other bands on their roster. Find out how they work. Read about how they take demos or don't on their website. Because every day we get emails um, and phone calls from people who haven't done their research, you know, who call up and don't even, you know, have a style of music that we work in. And and then they think, oh, well, I'll be the one exception. But, I mean, you don't want to be the one exception. You want to go with a label that does well with your genre, that knows how to market and sell it well. You don't want to be an experiment at some other you know, label that's never done it before. Um, and and so I, I guess my big piece of advice is do your research, find out how, what the label likes, what they want. And then just to add to what Rob said, you know, I, I think that part of the difficulty for us these days is that we can can no longer just put out records because we love them. There was a day when we could put out a record and sell a few thousand just because we released it and other people would go buy it. But today, people don't take that kind of risk with their money. They just, you know, get it for free. And so we can only afford to work with hard touring bands. And so the band has to be already working. Hard touring as a band before we can consider working with them. No, absolutely. I think that makes perfect sense. Um, you know, so we've, sorry. And, and that's the, the kind of untalked about downside of the freedom of the internet and uh, the rampant ripping off of music is that it's harder, it's actually stifled creativity in a way because there are a lot of worthwhile projects that we've turned down and not gotten out into the world because these bands aren't touring. It would be a, just a one-time collaboration or just some interesting... Uh, you know, aspect of these people's artistic vision, and we can't do anything with it, whereas we could before, and that that's always that's always disappointing. And you know, given our name, we get a lot of uh, demos by you know, like Norwegian doom metal <laughs> bands. And that's what I think of when I think of Bloodshot <laughs> and, and and rap acts and stuff. And and two thirds of our the demos we get, we can throw away within before even listening to it, because we can look at the package and go, you know, we, we're, we love, you know, Deicider or, you know, Cannibal Corpse or something. It's like, right. All right, you know, I love Motorhead more than just about anyone, but I don't, we don't put out Motorhead <laughs> records, you know? So yeah, do your research. It's, <laughs> yeah. 
you know, I know that the show, the 20th anniversary show, is coming up um, May 3rd at Logan Square. It's part of SimFest. You got Murder by Death, Andre Williams, Nora O'Connor, Danny Black's Precious Blood. Um, what else is coming up for uh, for Bloodshot now that you guys have hit, you know, 20 years? What, what else is on deck? Or where does it go from here? Uh, I'll give you the same answer that I gave during all the five-year interviews, the 10-year interviews, and the 15-year interviews. I have no idea. I mean, it's, it's, we put our heads down, we work, we, we, we believe in what we do, and, and then five years later, it's, we're doing another round of these interviews with still a, a sense of amazement and astound, astonishment that it, it's still working. <laughs> and that's why you guys are still here, though, because you're doing the work. That's what it's about. You guys are like... You're in the business of being bloodshot records. You're not getting lost in a lot of the other things that a lot of these people who aren't here anymore got lost in. And it's really cool to see. Um, Nan and Rob from Bloodshot Records, thank you guys so much for taking some time to talk us, talk to us all about kind of the history and everything that has happened with you guys and what it means to be a really successful label with longevity in Chicago and in you know today's musical climate in general. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for paying attention. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. This has been the Chicagoverse Unlimited podcast. Thanks to Nan Warshaw and Rob Miller of Bloodshot Records for being on the show this week. You can find more Dynasty podcasts at dynastypodcast.com. For the Dynamic Dynasty, my name is Haima Black, Dynasty Descend.